Are to be Vincent Price or be anyone else? I want to go Vincent Price, right? Uh, well, um, on that note, welcome, ghouls, gals, and baddest days of the world. This is Horror Hangover. I am Cass Clark, and I'm joined by Ryan C. Bradley. We had a couple of drinks last night, and before we get into the horror stuff, what is the state uh, of your hangover? Um, I started off with oat milk and like a whole box of seltzer. <laughs> but I am 32, so even having like two beers, I'm going to get hungover no matter what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not feeling it now, but I'm definitely not oriented. Like, I don't feel sick. Mm-hmm. Like my hangovers now are just like kind of like floating malaise yeah. <laughs> over my entire life. It's not like a horrible thing. I don't drink very very much, but I do drink. Yeah, I feel like mine is just like a vague sense of nihilism and I'm like oh oh because I drank last night (laughs) yes yeah I get that too I don't Uh, know if this is like the world's worst segue but we're talking about the feeling of nihilism that comes from being possessed by demons today yes talking all about possessions in particular magic priests in that trope in horror movies why do magic priests come in and save the day devil is amongst us stay back boy this calls for divine intervention. I kick ass for the Lord. Before we dive into it, one thing that I just find interesting is I feel like possession films go through waves of using that magic priest trope and then discarding it and doing something different, which we'll get into with Ryan leading us into the history. The exorcism ritual as portrayed, starting with the exorcist and other films, starts with the Bible, where demons get cast out. Jesus puts all the legion souls into the pigs and they jump off the mountain. In 1614, the Roman ritual was published as a field guide for Catholic rites, including the rite of exorcism, which is kind of like just taken repeatedly by films and followed. And then people started making stuff up too. But possession isn't just like a Catholic thing. We, we know that. We want to make that very clear. It kind of transcends culture spreading far and beyond and before Christianity. Possession beliefs have gone back as far as ancient Egypt. And there's been tablets discovered in ancient ruins that show that Egyptians definitely believed in demonic forces being able to possess individuals and also in other cultures as well, especially Gaelic cultures and in medieval Italy. So in Gaelic cultures, the way you treat spirits and demons are similar to like the way we consider now like treating your neighbor good, like being a good neighbor. And they believe that if you didn't pay homage or reverence to spirits around you, that you were likely to get possessed. So it's more or less like your fault. <laughs> so in medieval, uh, medieval Italy cultures as well definitely believed in a similar idea about how spirits work that like you had to regularly appease them and take them into consideration. Both have a belief in cursed objects and the idea that curses can be passed down through touching something, whether it's like a totem or a stone hedge and in the history there of like cursed rocks or something as simple as a, a coin that was cursed by someone and that that could damn you. Nice. Um, we'll be talking about cursed objects more with John Baltzberger in a couple of weeks slash months. The first 
exorcisms in films were two movies about Jesus himself, 1912's From the Manger to the Cross, which you can watch in full because it's 1912, the copyrights expired. And you can do the same with 1927, The King of Kings, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Both films have an exorcism scene, which is cool, but it's kind of different from the exorcisms that we're used to in movies as modern audiences, because it's Jesus doing it. When they call the power of Christ compels you, they're, they're talking about him. He's they're asking him to come back and do it. In 1957, we have Night of the Demon, which was the UK release name. In the US, it came out a year later under Curse the Demon. And it's an adaptation of M.R. James's Casting the Rune story. And that was also a great example of showing how supernatural entities can travel and follow people. And it's more connected to cursed objects. But what I thought was really interesting about bringing this film up is it shows psychologists who's trying to debunk all of supernatural studies and this evil cult leader who's trying to control evil. And they both are coming from a place of thinking that either they're beyond evil because one is like, I'm so intelligent, I can just... I don't, I don't think this exists and is disbelieving it. And the other is coming from a place of believing that the more and more he understands the evil, the more power he gets. And I think that idea about man controlling evil is something that isn't quite a magic priest, but it sows that seed idea of like men thinking they can control something beyond them. Just how much do you know about this book that you're after? Not very much. Only that Professor Harrington referred to it in his notes. A remarkable work. A few men that really understood it learned many strange and terrifying secrets. Only a few? Is it that hard to understand? I spent my life trying to decipher it. Our next stop on the exorcist journey, 1962's The Reluctant Saint, has the first exorcism by someone who isn't Jesus, but the person they're exorcising isn't possessed, um, which is a, a thing I've always wanted to see in more movies and more reading. The scene does incorporate floating. And then, of course, this brings us up to speed with the time period where The Exorcist, the film, the icon for everything that was going to follow with possession films. Outside the film, The Exorcist had two big influences. But I'm doing some air quotes here. The real possession of Napoleon St. Louis, which is pretty well notated. A lot of the scares from the film were directly inspired by details from that case. Letters on the skin would be one example. And the boy speaking different languages and saying just horribly inappropriate things. I remember very clearly this story because when I was 15, a teacher at my Catholic all-boys high school told this story in detail and I couldn't sleep for months. The other big exorcist influence was Rosemary's Baby, which exorcist novelist slash screenwriter and former Marx Brothers writer. You can see the Marx Brothers things a lot more in the book. The book is a lot funnier than the movie. Mm. And he cut a lot of like the recurring jokes. Like they're in there, but they're not recurring. Like Kinderman and Cars, whenever they meet in the book, talk about what actress they would look like. <laughs> um, I love that. that happens once in the movie. And in the movie, you're like, huh, this is kind of weird. But it's funny in the book because it happens again and again. William Peter Blatty, the writer, felt like Rosemary's baby made these moral compromises in his portrayal of Satan and demons. And it wasn't treating it seriously. And he was a devout Catholic, so he didn't, that didn't sit well with him. And he wanted the, the Exorcist book and movie to serve as a conversion tool, which is not super far from regular Catholic tactics. Reaction to the film was immediate and insane. They rushed to get it out in 1973, so it would be Oscar eligible. And it got nominated for, I believe, 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. Theaters handed out barf bags as a gimmick, but people actually used them. (laughs) There were lines, you can see photos, you look them up outside the theaters in New York City, because people just 
had to see this movie. There's a huge protest against it. It was like a cultural lightning rod. I don't think mm-hmm. there's been a movie in my entire life that has had this kind of reaction to it. My dad saw it. I don't know if he saw it when it first came out. While I was growing up, he always told me that it was so scary that people needed therapy after watching it. Um, so like this film always has occupied kind of that space in my mind. The fucking horror movie. The one that like you're going to need therapy if you watch. I didn't watch it until I was like 25 because I didn't want to have to go to therapy because I watched a movie. Do you remember the first time you watched The Exorcist? Yeah, I watched it with my sister. We rented it on my parents' TV. I had to be in grad school at that point. So it's been like 2014 or 2015. Mm. I think I've been like tearing through uh, Time Out London's top 100 horror movies to just like educate myself about the genre. And so The Exorcist was like the one I kept putting off because I, I was scared of it. I think even now, like when I watched it to get ready for the podcast, we watched the director's cut. It has the spider walk. Some of them don't have the spider. I think the movie's better without the spider walk. Yeah, it's so weird because I didn't, I remember the spider walk the most from having seen the film before. But yeah. now when I watch it, like I think at the time, like I remembered it feeling like, oh, this is just iconic scenes coming. I'm so excited for it. And then it just feels, it literally feels so spliced in and the effects don't match with it. It, it feels so yeah. off from everything else. Like everything else seems pretty, pretty cool, like special effects wise. And this gushing blood comes out that doesn't really Yeah, and match. she doesn't look like Reagan. Like the Contortionist yeah. is great and she does the spider walk great, but she doesn't look like Reagan. I can't remember where I read this, but I read that the director, William Friedkin, originally didn't include it because he felt like the movie was scarier if Reagan was trapped in one room. Yeah, I read that too. She's not going out killing people because she's yeah. trapped in one place. That, I think, was really what bothers me the most. I think that was the right choice. The original cut was the right choice for that. Yeah, because I think, I mean, before we delve into the the movie further, when I watched it without the spider walk, I always thought it as like, she was just like, Reagan was so sick, like physically ill from being possessed that physically she couldn't leave. And the demon was just like eating her soul and and making her more and more evil. So like, if she could leave, then why would she ever go back to her room? Like, why would she just go out the front door? Like, it makes no sense. Yeah, I think the movie is phenomenal. I think even like now, I think I've when I watch this movie now, 31 year old man, seen it five to 10 times. I went around and opened all the fucking blinds afterwards. <laughs> I was like, nope, not sitting in the dark house after that. One of the things that's most effective, and I've, I've heard Blatty talk about it in interviews, where he says like, the devil has to sound like the devil. So there's no holding back with the insults. The most vulgar one, your mother sucks cocks in hell. Oh, yeah. um, phenomenal line. I yell it at people while I'm driving. Uh, that's like one of my road rage lines. Watch out, Texans. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> and I think a lot of the films that followed in the Exorcist footsteps, especially the ones that are like more expressly conversion narratives and like they're trying to convert people, just feel sanitized by comparison. But the insults the kids yell just aren't as intense. I think even now, adults in movies don't yell insults that intense. So Pazuzu's with Reagan's body is breaking all these taboos and finding weaknesses of people's psychological armor. And then it's very personal too. And I think the personal insults are the scariest ones. When she starts talking about why you do this to me, Demi, which is also a line I say repeatedly to Betsy, when she does something, Betsy is my partner for those of you listening, when she says something that annoys me, like, why you do this to me, Demi? But I think the other actors from the film don't develop the characters as well. But I think Father Karis is a whole ass person. He's struggling with doubts about his choice of profession. 
And he's wondering how it's affected his mother, who's been living by herself and she's sick. If you took away the exorcist element of this film, and even you took away the priest element, a son who's devoted himself to a life of poverty, wondering about how it's affected his mother's old age, would make a pretty good film. You could make an Oscar bait film out of that story. It's like meaty material. It's a very good. I think he's better developed than a lot of characters in dramas. Mm. That is part of what makes it very effective. And I think that's part of what horror movie priests needs is to be a full human, not just a superhero coming in. Yeah, to be flawed and to have those flaws define them. Like if it wasn't for his flaws, I wouldn't give a shit about about his journey. Like that's kind of the whole point. Like you feel for this man who's like giving himself to a life of piety for like the good of humanity and wondering if that's even worth it, which I feel like is a fair question that I am sure many priests ask and it's normal. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like as an artist, I relate to that like a lot. I do not make very much money on my art. And I think about it a lot, like how would life be different for my partner, for our, our future child, if like I made a bunch of money? it would probably be easier at the very least. Um, I think the other thing that makes The Exorcist so successful and The Magic Priest so successful is we go through this like hour, hour 15 sequence of them exhausting every medical possibility. And I think that is very important. And that also gets left out from a lot of the the cash-in films that started in the 2000s, 2010s. So how did you feel about The Exorcist? Is this like a, a big movie for you too? I was surprised because I remember seeing, I know I saw the original much too young and being a bit scared of pea soup for a really long time. <laughs> like, <laughs> like as if I like ate pea soup, I was somehow going to become possessed and wouldn't eat peas for a bit. <laughs> like, like I definitely was probably like oh, maybe 11 to 12. And I definitely remember being preteen-ish when I saw it. So I hadn't seen it for a really long time. And I don't think I ever saw the director's cut in its entirety. So one thing I was really taken aback by was how it's slower, but it's very methodically paced and how much of Reagan's mom, Chris is in the story. Like, I don't know why, but I just, I misremembered so much of it. And I just thought the whole film was just around like the possession part and also father Karras, but I did not remember Chris at all really being a part of the story, but that's like a pivotal part of the first act, like how she's trying really hard as a mother and is struggling and arguably her fears and her doubts and her like anger at her like ex or whatever makes Reagan even more lonely and possibly susceptible to being possessed, which totally went over my head the first time I saw it. So yeah, I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I, I read that Blatty, the way he kind of conceived it was he wanted it to be like a traditional three act structure and that he wanted to show three different stages of possession in his mind. I'm not sure how close it was to like Roman Catholics view of exorcism, but he wanted to show obsession as the first stage where Reagan off screen is being basically like intrigued and like played with, especially with the Ouija board with this force. Then there's the actual poltergeist when like the supposed rats are making noises in the house and the bed starts shaking and the actual big possession where Reagan goes full monster. And I thought that was done really well. And I think what I really liked about it and why I think it still holds up so well is that it's not all at once. Unlike movies we'll talk about later, I like that if this is really a demon or a devil, whoever it is, the devil itself, I really do think it would fuck with Reagan. It would fuck with the whole house and it would take its time and play with it because if not, then like, what's really the point of possessions? You know what I mean? Like if if you could just possess someone and kill them, then that doesn't really feel much fun. Humans are the play things for 
demons. And I like showing that playfulness, even though it's malicious on screen. And I think that's what's scarier to me than necessarily like the physical embodiment of possession. Like it looks cool and it's terrifying, but it's more freaky to me that it could get at you whenever it could, but you just don't know when. So I think it does that really well. Yeah. Were you a Roman Catholic as a kid? Yes. (laughs) I I was as well. And I feel like that's like a, a big litmus test for uh your reaction to the exorcist were you told this was absolutely real as a child (laughs) because i feel like if i watch halloween right people are Uh gonna tell me like michael myers not real Mm. people can't get shot 30 times into the movie then get up and kill more people in halloween too (laughs) the exorcist oh yeah saw that at church on sunday (laughs) i mean i definitely yeah i was raised roman catholic i did catechism i got confirmed I was an usher at church, the whole nine yards. I feel like my parents were always scared of possession films. Like they didn't want to watch them ever. And they weren't really allowed to be watched in the house. It was like almost as if it was like a contagion kind of thing, which I kind of in a weird way respect. Like I don't, I'm not a practicing Catholic anymore, but I do love the idea of obviously they believe in God. So like even watching something that's centered around the devil feels like sort of a sin, I think in their mind. And my parents were terrified of Ouija boards. That was one thing too. I could never touch a Ouija board. My mom's like, if you do it, you're going to die. Yeah, (laughs) I'm with your mom. I would not touch a Ouija board even now. But it's good advice though. Cause it's like, well, what if, I don't know. Like I don't want to open the Necromonicon actually in real life. So no, I'm not messing with any of it. No. And one thing I was really surprised about, cause I know you mentioned that Blatty really hated Rosemary's baby. How much Chris Reagan's mom really, really looks like Mia Farrow's Rosemary and Rosemary's baby. Like if you look at her haircut and just like, she has kind of that, like that pixie short pixie cut. Um, and even just some, some of the ways that she acts and embodies Reagan's mom. I mean, no one can be Mia Farrow, but it really, it really seems a lot like her. And I wondered how much of that was intentional. I'm very sorry. It's all right. I should have told you I wouldn't be in uniform. I hadn't even thought of that. That's yeah. That's a great question. Uh, oh, one other thing I did want to mention that I never caught, like I never caught on a first watch before, but the song tubular bells, which is uh, by Mike Oldfield's the composer actually would go on to inspire John Carpenter's classic Halloween score. Oh yeah. And I can see that. Yeah. If you hear it, it's especially when like Chris is walking down the street to go see Reagan, like, early on in the film it said like so now if you rewatch it you can't not get it out of your head i'm gonna hear it yeah yeah i really liked uh father Karras, and i think that i i totally agree with what you're saying i think the reason why it works so well is he's flawed and he's questioning his face and he has doubts and i think because he's so fallible that's really what keeps me invested in his journey. And I think like, what's interesting is it's not really Catholicism that saves the day. It's, it's his humanity is what saves the day. And he believes, he believes when he's doing his right, because he believes in faith and he believes in like something's just being in God's hands, but he does it. It's his humanity, but also his hands. Cause he punches the shit out of that girl. <laughs> that's oh, that's true. <laughs> so uh an immediate response to the exorcist which like it got released like the very end of 1973 uh, so it could be eligible for oscars in 1974 there was avid which is a black exploitation flick around the same issues 1975 beyond the door which the producers of the exorcist sued 
but lost because they said their character, the exorcist team said the character beyond the door was too similar to the exorcist. And the judge was like, isn't the exorcist based on a true story? There. And they're like, oh, well, shit. <laughs> Um, and then in 1975, The House of Exorcism by the great Mario Bava came out, but it was just a rework of his 1973 Lisa and the Devil to have like an exorcism frame. The 80s got quieter in terms of, of priests, mm-hmm. um, but that's when Sam Raimi started his career. He had some kick-ass possession movies, including The Evil Dead and The Evil Dead 2. Gotcha, didn't I, you little sucker? Drag me to hell as well. I mean, he inspired Night of the Demons in 88. Amityville 2 becomes a possession movie, probably because of The Exorcist. And The Exorcist also spawned its own franchise. We got The Exorcist 2, The Heretic, The Ninth Configuration, which is arguably an Exorcist film because of Blatty's involvement, The Exorcist 3 in 90, and then 2004, 2005 with Exorcist Beginning, and then Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, and the TV series from 2016 to 2017, and the trilogy of sequels by David Gordon Green are on the way. So. It's kind of never died as a franchise. So the 90s didn't have a ton of other exorcism films. It wasn't just as popular then. I'm not sure why. Not a lot of magic priests going around. Brain Dead, Dead Alive, which we had a quote from at the beginning. I kick ass for the Lord, which is hysterical. And in 1995, there's Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight, which is a classic black horror film. But in the 2000s, Possessions and Priests made like a huge comeback. There's the Exorcism of Emily Rose, which launched... Scott Derrickson's career in a lot of ways. The Last Exorcism, which I included from 2010, because the title makes me laugh because there are just so many exorcism movies in that time. And then there's The Right, starring Anthony Hopkins, The Conjuring series, which is obviously very exorcist inspired. It follows, kind of continues the demonic passing on curses with no one to save you but yourself and a more metaphorical without priests kind of thing. And then Get Out, I think, is also... I've argued Get Out is a vampire film, and I can see this possession film too. It mm-hmm. kind of can fit in a lot of places, but it turns possession on its head with this medical twist and scathing social commentary, which leads us to how do we make priests work now? The first movie we're going to talk about is The Divine Fury. <laughs> which I hope you all will go out and watch. It is a South Korean movie released in 2019, directed by Kim Joon Hwan. It's his fourth feature, second big budget movie, second translated into English. It stars Bak Su-shun, who you'll see in Parasite, and An Sung-ki as Father An. And the premise is amazing. It's so good. Um, it's <laughs> so incredible. So the, the premise is... Um, I believe you pitched it to young. me as like, he punches out demons. I'm like, what? No. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the, is the movie starts with him. He's just, he is... His dad dies, and he's a kid, and his dad is very Catholic, and he, he turns his back on the church actually pegs the the priest who comes to the funeral in the face with a cross and he becomes a professional fighter and he's just beating ass all around the world he's this undefeated mma fighter he's on a flight home and something bites his hand he gets like a stigmata and young goes to this church to find this priest to help him and the priest is doing an exorcism and the the person who's possessed breaks free and starts beats up the priest he beats up the priest's friend who runs away the other priest and then the, the undefeated MMA fighter comes in and he just beats the ever living shit out of this guy. And his hand like lights on fire a little bit and he puts it on the guy's head and the priest throws some holy water on the spot and it's like gasoline and the guy's head bursts into fire and he's, he's released from his possession. His demon is gone. So this guy, this undefeated MMA fighter, 
with the help of this priest, just goes around beating the ass of anyone who is possessed until they're not possessed anymore. And there's many possession scenes because there's many asses to beat. It's just so fucking cool. The thing that really works for me in this movie is that the the MMA fighter is never converted Mm. and he's never like convinced to believe. And I think that really works for me. Yeah, like so there's a line I really like where Father On is basically telling Young Ho that he has so much hate in his heart for God, which means he must have some belief for him. And that's really as far as he pushes him, which I think is really smart, where he's like, hmm, I can tell you're questioning. And okay, there's something there. I won't make you find Jesus by the end of the film. Yeah, and I, I really appreciated that in the film. I appreciate that in any exorcism film, when there's room for more than one set of beliefs, I really appreciate it. As a martial artist, how did you feel about the, the fight scenes in this movie? <laughs> I'm always curious. Whenever I watch a a movie with fighting, I'm like, what would Cass say about this? From the get-go, they're like, yeah, he's a 15-time undefeated welterweight champion. Woohoo! 170 pound of muscle. But although he's fighting MMA, he's mostly a boxer. He really only boxes. I think one of my pet peeves with martial art films is like, they train in one style, but then when it comes to actual fighting, they're like, and now I know Muay Thai. I'm just going to throw some elbows and (laughs) knees and shins. And you're like, when did you learn Muay Thai? (laughs) Like, when did this happen? So I think it's you learn the style of martial arts that looks visually coolest for this scene. It happens all the time. You've been training something else. So I do really respect that even though he's kicking your ass with all these demons, it's always just boxing. He's like ducking and weaving and just like jab and right hook. And I like that it's his dominant boxing hand is the hand that has the stigmata flames that can exercise demons. Because I think it's eh, maybe in some people's view, it's heavy handed, but I like the idea of what gave him power and strength came from boxing. And that's literally his leading hand where he gets all his like knockouts from. And I think it's important that that's what carries him through and then eventually to help other people. So I think that's metaphorically really pretty and I'm a fan of it. Yeah. I mean, how'd you feel about the priest? Yeah, I think father on at times, I think he was a bit flat sometimes, but I think what I liked is that he was still imperfect. Like, I think there's one cute scene between them. They've literally just like exercised a bunch of demons because like Ryan said, there's a bunch of like every, every like couple of minutes or so they're like, all right, time to kick some butt, Let's exercise some demons. So there's like easily like 10 plus exorcisms in this film. And then an insane third, like final act where it's just like a John Wick meets Constantine film out of nowhere. <laughs> there's a scene where Father On is just having beers in the apartment. It's just saying how like demon fighting basically makes him really hungry. And Young Ho is just like, oh, I don't, dr- like, I don't really drink. I just, I just fight. That's what helps me or whatever. And he's like, okay, go get me another beer. <laughs> like, and I think that was, I think that was a really good Yeah, moment. Characters feel more real when they have physical needs and they have like things they do to relax after the, the fight scenes. Yeah. And I think, although the priest helps a lot, the priest doesn't save the day. I feel like in another hand, this movie could have been like Father On leads, you know, Young Ho into this journey of rediscovering his faith. And then all of a sudden he feels so moved that he quits MMA fighting and he puts on a collar and decides to like become pious and but that doesn't happen like he does literally at one point put on a priest collar but only as like a form of armor (laughs) yeah at one point there's never that suggestion that he is somehow like wrong or flawed for not believing in catholicism and i think that that's nice and i like the father on doesn't push him and i think father on fails a lot which i think is important so like similar to what we were talking about earlier with exorcist he makes a lot of mistakes and he takes on too much and he's very human unlike something like the conjuring where like ed warren who's not even a priest can just like pick up a book and just read a couple of pages and then the devil just disappears. <laughs> These people, 
the man, he is her son. He helps. The woman, she practices the old ways. She's a bruja. For our indie pick that is kind of an alternative to magical priests saving the day is The Old Ways. Quick synopsis, it centers on Christina around this journalist who had this really troubled past and loses her mother at a very young age in Veracruz, Mexico. Decides to move and start a career in journalism and has a lot of like literal inner demons <laughs> to work out. And over the course of the film, she goes to her hometown and she wants to go to this place called La Boca for what she believes is going to be like a really cool assignment, kind of document old ways, forgotten cultures in her, in her community. But everyone is like, don't go there. Don't go there. And she goes there <laughs> and she goes into this cave and she ends up getting possessed. She doesn't believe she's possessed. And she wakes up in this cage. She is captured by Luz, who's a shaman and her son, Javi. They are trying to tell her that she's possessed and she's convinced that she's not possessed and she just wants to go home. And over the course of the film, we see how the possession affects her. In this film, it's very Bruja focused. And I think what's really nice about that is it just lets another religion have the stage for lack of better words and to have its own power in the stories. Christina goes through her own journey um, with uh, Luz, the local shaman, but Luz is not someone that's revered. She's someone that's like basically like living in squalor. Yeah. Anyone outside of this community thinks that she's just crazy and this way of life is crazy. And I think that's really important because it also works to show like how colonization has affected a lot of religions and pushed them out to the outskirts and taken away their power and, and their belief systems. What did you think about the old ways? I felt very similar to you. I also feel like we're talking about the, with Roman Catholicism earlier. I think yeah. part of any movie and any book is like who you are going in and mm -hmm. you kind of like see it in a mirror into your life. My grandfather was a Mexican immigrant. So I related to this movie a good amount. So I feel like I had a similar experience to Christina and being, I'm definitely a, a white Mexican, but I feel like I had, like I have family in Mexico mm -hmm. and I met them when I was five years old and seen them a couple of times over the years since then, but I don't feel like I really mm -hmm. belong in that. And so I'm, I was very interested in her journey throughout. And I feel like part of her journey is becomes more part of the culture that her, her family had was part of and became yeah. part more of her family. I think the cousin is very important for that. She's a cousin who's helping with the exorcists, oh, the exorcism. Yeah. yeah, I think what you said about how it gives another culture the stage is great. And I think that's what I really liked about this movie. Yeah, I guess. So one thing I think that gets to me about like the magical priest thing is I don't like that. It feels like religion always has to be this like hierarchy of power led by mostly like white men that are coming in and then dictating to other white men, like how to control situations, control people that is very messy and complicated. So in a different relig religious structure like this one, it takes out a lot of those factors. Like honestly, women-led power, but it feels more like collective power. Like the shaman can't act alone. Like mm -hmm. Luz needs her son Javi. And later on, now I don't want to spoil it because it's a great film, but later on when yeah. other people are working with like, sh like shaman healers, they need other people to help. And I think that I think that really spoke to me too, where it doesn't feel like a one-man show or like strict command structure. It felt like yeah. community. I like the absence of the strict command structure too. I'm not yeah. a huge fan of authority or bosses. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are what are some reasons do you think that? Because you've talked a lot about um, how priests always seem to like come back into possession stories like through time. Um, why do you think that is like, why do you think after every couple decades, it, it just comes back again, aside from maybe just the exorcist franchise being 
a cash cow. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yeah, obviously the cash cow is there for sure. And I think that like Christianity also ebbs and flows. And I think that the, the times when we get a lot of these possession movies, we get a lot. It's because there's a lot more Christianity. We're not a politics podcast, but if you look what's happening on like the right with extreme Christians, when you see that, I think it helps understand like, why are we getting so many bad polemic movies about exorcisms where the people of the movie were faithless and they got punished by a demon and now they believe in God and they won't get punished by a demon again. Because I think the exorcist isn't that, but I think if you break it down too far and you take away the medical stuff and you take away Chris's struggles, you take away Father Carson's struggles, um, so they're not people anymore, that's what the story breaks down to. A non-believer is punished by a demon and they're saved by believing. I think that is a very boring story structure and it's very, but it's just a very moralizing kind of story. And I don't think there are any successful stories that moralize that extremely. I think stories are interesting in the nuanced gray areas, but I think it keeps coming back because that kind of story just sells with people who think a certain way. Mm. I'm a huge Sam Raimi fan. I, I love, just love the idea that earlier we're talking about gleeful demons. I think definitely the Deadites are in some way inspired by Reagan's possession for sure. They're, it's not just malicious or evil. They're, they're playful. They're curious. They're smart as heck. Like they like to manipulate. They like to disguise, like to fuck with you psychologically. What's so interesting about Sam Raimi's stories is that anyone at any time, no matter if you're good or bad, similar to the exorcist, like you can get possessed. And the only way out of it is not through. It's like, you're kind of just damned, which, um, which I thought was interesting. And I, 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 I'm not quite sure why in the eighties that was happening aside from like, you might've gotten some of it at least though because just to clarify when you said reagan did you mean oh linda blair or uh, <laughs> well i meant linda Ronnie. blair but i guess also reagan like yeah. reaganomics came in and we just believed in nothing i guess i think that was a big influence on uh, everything in the 80s yeah as trump is a big influence on all the stuff we're getting now yeah I think Sam Raimi was the exception, not the rule for a lot of 80s yeah. stuff. I think a lot of other 80s stuff was more party focused. I like slasher movies generally. But if you watch like Friday the 13th, any segment, any installment of Nightmare on Elm Street, they're like super fun. They're designed to have a good time. Um, I don't know if Evil, yeah. at least the first Evil Dead is not. And it seems almost like a repudiation of that. Yeah. I think what I'm trying to say is I feel like slashers were not nihilistic. Slashers were like, even with all the murder, there were very moral tales. Mm. And Evil Dead was not like that. There's no final girl in the Evil Dead. And there's Ash. But Ash doesn't like survive because he's the best at anything. He's just like, like it's a combination of luck and Mm. stupidity and just sheer determination. Yeah, it's just really like happenstance that he survives. And even he gets possessed and then unpossessed. (laughs) By the magic of sunlight. <laughs> so now that David Gordon Green is coming in with a whole new trilogy of exorcist films, what direction do you think this magical priest narrative is going to go? Like, do you think it's going to be one of those things where it's going to follow in the footsteps of like The Conjuring, where it's a bit more moralistic? Because I don't, I don't really think The Exorcist is moralistic. I think it's just, it is also kind of sort of happenstance and tragic yeah i think one of the interesting of the extras i think that blatty the the writer wanted to be moralistic and friedkin the director did not and so i think there's like a tug of war going on i think that's one of the reasons the film is so successful 
is because there's that disagreement at the center of it. Mm-hmm. So what I would hope for the Gordon Green exorcist movies to answer your question is for him to to treat the priests as, as people um, and to to let them be fully developed people. Mm-hmm. Or just to put it out there, asking writers to write fully developed characters. It's like, great. Like when I go to a restaurant, I want a really good steak. (laughs) What's going to make my meal good is you give me like the best steak you've ever cooked. It's it's like way easier said than done. (laughs) What do you think? I don't, I'm not a big fan of his Halloween movies, except with the exception of 2018 was okay. But putting that out of my mind and treating like every project as a blank slate because <laughs> I feel like that's not totally fair to judge judge up my Halloween feelings into The Exorcist. I think for it to be successful, I would love to see, I guess, more of a process around the possession itself. Like, I think the reason why I film like the con- like any of The Conjuring, especially the latest one, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, I did not like how it did possession because it was so quick. It was mostly just CGI effects and just like, the, I once had a, a teacher, Laura Vandenberg, she once told me that for any story, you have to be very careful about how you ratchet up the dial of the storytelling. So if you say you start a story at like, uh, like the volume is at two, where things are like slowly moving along, you can play as much as you want with that dial. But if you go from two to 11, it's going to be really hard to bring that dial back down unless the story is like de-escalating yeah. So I think with possession films, especially big, big blockbuster ones, they start at like, they go from two to 11 to have like a big opening sequence and to get people invested in, in everything happening. That really, for me, I think spoils the belief in this evil is happening where other films, I think have been more successful, let possession slowly build up and happen. Or if they're not doing that, like in Divine Fury, people are just quickly possessed and it travels really quickly. But the point of it is like watching how people are being exercised repeatedly in that journey. Like that's a separate journey. And I would say like, if you were to put the divine fury on the the two through 10 dial, it like opens at a seven and maintains like a seven to nine until the climax where it hits 10. It's like a, a very intense movie. Or just like, there's a ton going on at all times. And I think like for the Exorcist trilogy, I'm just really curious and cautious at the same time because I don't know why it needs a trilogy and I'm not sure what the connective tissue is. Like, how are we carrying on these stories? Like, I guess Chris is coming back, but like, why? (laughs) Like, is this going to be a whole new story? (laughs) I'm, I'm interested to see how they rope it all together. I'm hopeful. I always try to be hopeful about projects. Yeah. I feel like it's only fair to go into a project with as little expectation as possible. I think that's how I try to go. I try to avoid previews for that reason. Um, I try not to see the reviews. Mm. I can't help but look the Rotten Tomatoes score, even though I hate that it exists. Because I think we were talking <laughs> earlier about how like part of any response to a movie is like your lived experience in any yeah. book. Your lived experience is like a huge part of that. And so like, I think saying a movie is 87% good because 87% of critics said it was good is uh, it misses the boat. Yeah. So <laughs> part of your experience is who you are, you know? Like, I love professional wrestling. It's like a fucking course. I love the movie where someone exercises someone with their fists. Yeah. <laughs> I know the critic from Roger Ebert, Simon Abrams, hated this movie. I was reading his review. He hated I, do, it. I was too this morning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah and I just I feel like, like 
I don't blame him because like his experiences, they're not the same as mine. He doesn't want the same things as me. Yeah. I feel like that's a huge part of film criticism that Twitter and all or nothing thinking have kind of just flattened. Rotten Tomatoes have flattened in an annoying way. I guess going back to your David Gordon Green question, what am I hopeful for or what do I want to see? It's just story progression. I want to see characters develop and change. And I think that there's a lot of potential to build out the world. Like I think one of the, I love Exorcist 3. I'll sing its praises all day. And I think what works really good about that film is most of it is just spending time with like Father Dyer and Kinderman, just talking, mm-hmm. talking about their magazines and talking about a film that they're going to go see and whether or not they're going to get butter on the popcorn and just kind of like being this like in my head canon, like lovely gay couple, just like living their life. <laughs> and it's just, it's so, they're so sassy. I love it. They're just... <laughs> Uh, so like that's a good example of a film where like I, I in no way uh, would have thought that Exorcist 3 I would never have expected that after seeing The Exorcist but I'm so glad it exists so who knows maybe as long as they don't fuck with Father Dyer and Kinderman I'll be very happy but if they do anything with them and they make it I don't know changes their lovely love story I'll be so pissed <laughs> so any final thoughts on uh, Priest Saving the Day it sounds like you come to agreement that we think 3D priests are the way to go. 3D characters who are not just superheroes coming in. Yeah. They don't have all the power, you know, they have to have like some human element. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I, I would say like, I would love to see more exorcism films, like from the vantage point of different religious practices. I think that'd be really awesome. But if we're going to get more Catholic priests, I think, yeah, just showing them as flawed individuals, like anyone else is just trying to get through the day and makes like, they make mistakes uh, and then they have to deal with them. And not feel like we're being preached to, to throw a bun in there with our priests. Yeah. I think that's important. Tune in next time where me, Ryan, and John Baltzberger discuss cursed objects and all the things that do or don't work when that tropes in play and what we are looking forward to in future films that use that device. Thanks, y'all.